A week ago, yesterday, over 50,000 people gathered in the Washington, D.C. Mall. It was a prayer march, Prayer March 2020. Some of you may have been familiar with it. Maybe you tuned into it. Uh, Franklin Graham, Billy Graham Association, and Samaritan's Purse um, took initiative with that event. There was also a simultaneous event uh, called The Return that was uh, put in place. And you heard maybe nothing about it. There were no riots. There was no shouting. There was no uh, disruption. But Christians across the nation from every 51 of the 50 states gathered to be able to pray. The music video you just saw from John Rich, Earth to God, premiered as a new solo during that simulcast. And when I saw it, I said, Lord, that's sort of my prayer. Earth to God, come in God. And um, I trust that uh, whether you're watching from home today or you're seated here with us, that you will take concerted efforts to ask God to come in to your own life and your own heart as we as a body of people discern what he would have for us in this season of our time and our life, especially in our nation. And I'm not sure about you, but there's a tendency in my life to get frustrated with all kinds of news events or things here or there. It's amazing what a news cycle will hold, is it not? You know, it was just a week ago Saturday that the uh, selection for a next Supreme Court justice was announced. It was actually announced at the end of this prayer march. Then you had a debate this week among presidential candidates that I think all of us would agree that was not the best. And then our president and the first lady contracted COVID and several others, and that whole concern comes back immediately present to us. There are definitely needs in our nation, but those needs are reflected in our own life and our own family. And what I'd like to do uh, during this month is get us to attune ourselves, not to the political world, not to the crisis of culture, but attune ourselves to God, earth to God, come in God. In fact, that's one of the reasons we designated a prayer meeting for us as a church family at the end of this month, the last Sunday of the month, as Pastor Zach mentioned, and I encourage you to come. You might think, wow, an hour long of prayer? Well, trust me, prayer goes pretty quick, uh, even in an hour season. But I want us to be in prayer, but I want us to be attuned to what God's heart is for us as a people. And of course, assuredly, as we're leading up to a very critical election, that we would be able to have our hearts attuned to um, joining in the process that we've been gifted uh, in a democracy to participate. But my concern is not so much with the election as it is with the American church. And Christians, beginning with myself, including every one of you that are here and each one of you that are online this morning, that we as Christians would be able to um, navigate in a manner that's appropriate and godly. And for that reason, I um, want us to focus on a new series um, today that we begin 
And um, that series is Thinking Biblically in a Culturally Divided World. And I'd like to begin by reading for you a um, syndicated article by someone that I became uh, familiar with a number of years ago. In fact, when I look back on my life sometimes, I, I think I've been privileged to interact with several people. And when I was a young adult pastor at a large church, we would uh, regularly take uh, students and young adults on mission trips. And uh, some of those were inside the United States. And the one inside the United States uh, that we would sometimes go to was actually in New York City. And in New York City, we um, uh, would go and we would do ministry on the streets and we would interact with people. We would do surveys, engage them in conversation as where they're at spiritually, that kind of thing. And uh, this one particular year, uh, we got on a boat to go around Manhattan and it was July 4th and there were tons of fireworks going off. It was quite an incredible way to experience uh, July 4th, Independence Day. But as the fireworks were going off, me and one of my best friends, we had the opportunity to sit down with a gentleman who had been a speaker and was on that boat with us, and his name was Cal Thomas. And Cal Thomas is probably one of the most well-known American uh, syndicated columnists. Cal Thomas is a very solid believer. And for two hours, we had a conversation with Cal Thomas. And so I've attuned myself sometimes to just sort of hear some of his words and his thoughts. And I came across um, his article this week, and it was published in the, Jew, uh, the Jewish World Review. Listen to his words. It's entitled, Why So Much Anger? There was a time in America, unknown or not, experienced by people under the age of 50, when politics was a contact sport played with mostly accepted rules and the equivalent of sportsmanship. Losers would graciously concede and wish the victor well, in most cases vowing to work with him or her for the good of the country. The public expected it. Somewhere around the time of the Vietnam War and Watergate, it started to become ugly, and instead of sportsmanship, the players began to engage in mutually assured destruction. To borrow a term used during the Cold War when the United States and the Soviet Union had missiles aimed at each other's countries, and it was appropriately abbreviated MAD, M-A-D. It isn't that in the early elections, politicians wouldn't refrain from slurring and slandering each other. Many did. The 1800 contest between John Adams and Thomas Jefferson was cutthroat in the extreme. Jefferson's camp labeled President Adams a fool, a hypocrite, a criminal, and a tyrant. In return, Adams recalls Jefferson's camp labeled President Adams a fool. Uh, Adams men branded Vice President Jefferson a weakling, an atheist, a libertine, and a coward. That was nearly two centuries before the creation of the modern-day news outlets like CNN and Fox News. Capable of exasperating division and promoting slugfest as in boxing matches or long ago outlawed by cockfights. This year's pre-election rioting, looting, shootings in many American cities is not only a consequence of the failure or refusal of politicians to fix problems, it is also a failure by too many citizens who look to government to find solutions 
for things it was never created to address. It is not the fault of a train that it cannot fly. A car mechanic should not be blamed because he can't perform open-heart surgery. Government has a purpose, but it is not to solve problems only an individual can address. People who are angry at government instead of looking to Washington should be looking in the mirror. There have been injustices as long as the humans have walked on this earth. The U.S. government has tried mightily and at great expense to fix them, but most are matters of the heart, not matters of politicians. Matters for politicians. If the latter, would not those injustices by now have been solved? While it is possible for government to impose or tolerate immorality, it is close to impossible to impose its opposite. This is the role of churches and of individuals making the right decisions for themselves and their families. Is anyone ignorant of what creates, quote, unquote, a more perfect union that establishes justice and promotes the general welfare? The information is readily available. It is not classified. The anger arises when people refuse to search, find, and then live by well-established principles that have mostly worked for those who have embraced them throughout history. Anger solves nothing and only deepens divisions and multiplies the problems the angry claim they want to solve. In her book, 300 Questions to Ask Your Parents Before It's Too Late, Sharon Alder writes this, Anger, resentment, jealousy doesn't change the heart of others. It only changes you. If only the riots devastating our cities would understand this and look to themselves and not to the next election or Washington to readdress real and perceived grievances. There's all kinds of division that's happening in our culture, in our world, even at large. And there's a tendency to do one of two things. One is to whine about, oh my gosh, look, it's what's happening to our world, and complain. And the other is to get caught up in fighting. But as we're going to see in this series, our call is not to whining, and it's not to fighting. Our call is to think biblically in a culturally divided world and represent the indescribable, overwhelming, majestic, incredibly transforming power and love of Jesus Christ. That's our calling as believers. And if you're not a believer in Christ today and you're just seeking God out, then I want to encourage you to uh, maybe dig out your ears and look at some other direction. Because our world is not looking for somebody to solve a cultural issue as much as it's looking for love and genuineness, authenticity. And even though they may not recognize it, they're looking for truth. And we are the bearers of that as the body of Christ, as, as uh, followers of Him, as co-heirs with Him for eternity. We get these day and ages, this day and age to participate with Him in the ongoing ministry of His gospel to bring transformation to the heart of people. And we've said it many a times around here in one sense, for such a time as this, this could be our bright and shining moment. But we have to think rightly to think biblically, as I'm going to be sharing, because if not, we will find ourselves adrift 
and being able to appropriately address and interact in appropriate ways with all the division and the issues at hand. Can you name some of the ways and the issues that this country is divided and the world is even divided? What's your most hot topic that needs to be addressed? What's one of the culturally divided aspects that you're listening to or healing or maybe hearing or maybe even experiencing in your own life or your own family that just like, oh, we need to do something about that, right? Well, here's a few about the whole subject of marriage and divorce. How about sexuality and gender equality? Or even today, this whole subject of gender identity. Racial and ethnic parity. About the rights of the unborn and the aging. The authority of government. What's really its place? What about the environment? Immigration. Religious freedom. Let's all take a vote here today. Which is your hot topic? These are others. No, I won't do that. But you and I were constantly being barred bombarded by these issues in our culture and many times what happens to the christian believer is we sort of uh, uh, disappear on some things or we become combative or we just complain we are called to be christ followers but as christ followers we do not live and function and serve the kingdom of god in a vacuum we've been placed in a culture you've been placed in the culture and the year 2020 america with all that's going on and it's different than the culture of the 1950s it's a different culture here in southern california than where i came from which was the midwest you know, they say the Bible Belt is the Midwest or the South, right? And so I come from a Bible Belt to Southern California. And, and then I was told that the Temecula area uh, was probably the closest to a Bible Belt that you can get in Southern California. In California. Well, I don't know about you. I was on an um, interview on an internet uh, show this last week, and we were talking and jesting a little bit about the whole Bible Belt kind of idea and, and where, you know, how are things changing? The culture's not what it used to be. And I gave reference to the idea that Temecula was seen as sort of a, a Bible Belt area. And uh, one of the commentators, she said, she says, yeah, it's like a really teeny, teeny little belt. And her husband said, yeah, it's not like a big Texas belt. <laughs> Friends, I come from sort of the Bible Belt area. You'd walk into stores, you'd hear Christian music, you would uh, have prayers after the uh, Pledge of Allegiance at high school sporting events, right? There's uh, uh, the rush at the restaurants on Sunday after church because everybody's sort of in church. There's churches on a lot of different corners. This is not the Bible Belt. But you know what? The Bible Belt is no longer the Bible Belt. Culture's changing and transitioning. And you go, oh my goodness, what is it? And a lot of times fear rises up within us because of change. Because we perceive change as negative, right? And we don't quite know what to do. And so we push back, we try to resist it. We talk about former days here or there. Friends, we are alive in a great day and age and God's on the move. And Christ is active in our culture because Christ is working through our culture. And culture is not bad. 
I remember in some of my graduate education, we studied a book by Richard Niebuhr. It's a classic book written in the 50s called Christ and Culture. And in that book, there were five different kinds of positions related to how Christ and culture are put together. And the Christ and culture equation being put together is one where um, you can see Christ. And then the first example was Christ against culture, which is people that are followers of Christ thinking that everything in culture is bad, bad. Oh, that's bad. Stay away from that. And so Christ against culture was pushing away. And so fundamentalist or sectarian people would go and climb in their own little world over here. Culture bad. God good. Then another aspect that some people follow is the Christ of culture, where it's embracing all of culture. Everything's just fine and dandy, pretty good. God's created all things. And so liberal Protestant movements sort of have gone some of those directions, of just embracing anything that's in modern day culture. And then there's the aspect of Christ above culture. And there's some other dimensions within this one where, you know, Christ is over culture. Culture is generally good, but it needs to be informed and it needs to have the church and it has other values that need to come into place within that culture. A lot of times more established uh, uh, movements, religious movements like Catholicism, others is that, you know, it's like, hey, the church really needs to be. The... And then there's sort of the church and uh, culture and paradox where culture is generally sort of good, but you know, there's the paradox, and so you sort of have it coming back and forth, and you sort of pick and choose. It's like, well, that's okay in culture to believe that, but, but this is really what the Christians believe, what we need to have. And then there's uh, Christ, the transformer of culture, which culture was good, but it fell, and Christ is transforming the culture and making all things new. That was a little sociology, missiology class for you. Do you know if you want to find out what water's like, you shouldn't ask a fish? Because a fish only knows water. He can't speak, it can't speak objectively of the water. You are in a fishbowl, you are floating water. It's the culture of modern day uh, Western America that's politically charged, culturally divided. The waning of Christendom. You are in a culture and environment and you need to be wise so that you can be a minister of God's grace and power to others, to your own family, and to yourself. Whether it's these issues that are listed here or other issues, my call, and this is a mere introduction here this morning, my call as Christian, you must think biblically in this culturally divided world where you have no impact and you'll be eaten alive by the pressures that are around us. In Psalm 146, it says this, Do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. Blessed are those whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. 
I don't know why we get into personality worship or think the government can solve things. God can lead and direct. And I believe one of the best things to do is to participate, yes, in a political process as you're enabled with a biblically thinking mind. But our hope is not in an individual or in a party. Our hope is in the Lord, our God. And I want to call us in this biblical thinking world back to His very presence. And so I've just simply entitled my thoughts this morning as we start off this series, Your Worldview Makes a World of Difference. Your Worldview Makes a World of Difference. What is a worldview? I wear glasses. I started wearing glasses when I was 40. How about you? If you're before 40, watch out. There's something magical about that number. Things start to fade with your eyes. So we have lenses that we place on. When it's bright and sunny, we place sunglasses on. We have other kinds of glasses maybe that we use, maybe for reading or something. A worldview is the lens through which you look and you view things. What is your worldview? How do you look upon life? You may, I don't have one, man. I, you know, I just sort of go with the flow. No, all of us have a pair of worldview glasses on. How do you view glasses? I mean, view through your glasses that you have on. Is there a God or is there not a God? That would be one big general kind of worldview. All right? Some would be naturalists. Others would be theists, that there's one God. Some people see through the lens of, oh, there's multiple gods, right? For those who look through the lens of naturalism, is the human being the, 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 the supreme kill-all kind of thing for the years that we're given here on this earth? Maybe so, if you're looking through that lens. And things play out their way from there. The closest I think Jesus ever got to using some big term like worldview in his day and age was this verse in Matthew 6.22. It says this, Jesus says, The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. And then the light within you. If it is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, what you could sort of do with this verse, and I don't think it's too much of eisegesis, which means putting into Scripture that's not there, you can trade out the idea of eyes for the lenses and talk about worldview. If your worldview is healthy, your whole body and all you do will be full of light. But if your worldview is unhealthy, your whole body will start to become full of darkness. And if you have the wrong worldview, that darkness can go on to be very, very dark indeed. How great is that darkness? So, your worldview will make a world of difference because how it impacts all the other things that are part of our life. There is a um, diagram I want to show you. And this diagram um, comes from, it's a concentric circle idea. Uh, Lloyd Quist 
and understanding culture, which is missiology and understanding, you know, different societies, how do you minister the gospel effectively to them, takes the idea of a sphere, and maybe it's the idea of let's pull out the eyeball, right? The eye, the eye, right? So there's a sphere that he's talking about, and on the outside of the sphere, he talks about behavior, what is done. When you see some things around you, maybe in your own life, your own home, maybe on the news or something, you're going like, why do people do that? Why do people go there? Why why does that happen, right? Well, if you're going to think biblically, you need to think past the whole concept of behavior and what is done to go inside to the next tier, the next concentric circle, and that has to do with values. Well, what do they value? What is good? Or what is best? Some of the challenges that we're seeing with people who, who uh, and maybe you're one of them, it's great to have rightful protest and to demonstrate and to try to bring about good and change. That's all great. But there's some individuals with their worldview that actually think that violence is a value and it's okay. Well, where did they get that from? Well, there's something that's behind that. So the next concentric circle, as it says here, is beliefs. What is true? What is true? Well, is it true that violence really helps? Or, or is it like Cal Thomas quoting that lady about the things you needed to talk to your parents about? Anger and jealousy and all that only doesn't change others. It changes you and, and makes your heart small. But inside, at the very core is your worldview. Your worldview, what is real? What is true of our world? And you and I need to start, I believe, with a biblical worldview in order to begin addressing in our own life and with others the values that need to come about from our beliefs that ultimately end up changing behavior. And in this way, we can begin to have an understanding, a richer understanding of all that needs to happen for true change to come about in our culture. I want to present to you a biblical worldview. A biblical worldview, and as you would guess, it's based upon Scripture some. But your worldview, what's at the core of how you see, the lens that you see through with life, as adults, as students, as children. You know, I don't know about you, but one of the things that I can whine about and try to fight against is what I see happening in our school systems. Because I'm like, what? Where did that club get permission to come into the school, right? Or who says that that person can go off on that rant as a teacher, right? They're speaking values. They are subtly imposing beliefs because everybody has a worldview. And thankfully, some of them have really solid, rock-solid worldviews. Some of you are teachers in this very room. And so we have to climb back into the core of that concentric circle and address the worldview. And what we need to be thinking from appropriately is a biblical worldview. And the right kind of light that's within us will bring us to a full light. But if that light within us is a dark light, or if that worldview is a dark worldview or an incorrect worldview, it will bring about beliefs and values and then behaviors that are not healthy. 
But some of the things that are going to ultimately be answered with our worldview, ultimate truth, and embraced with a confident faith can be things like this. How did the world and all that came into being come about? What is reality in terms of knowledge and truth? How does or should one function in our world? What is the nature of the human being and our purpose? What is our personal purpose of existence, each of us? How then should we live according to that? Is there any hope for the future? What happens to a person at and after death? That's a big question. Why is it possible to know anything at all? Is everything just relative? You decide what you want to decide. Your friend gets to decide what they want to decide. And hey, it's all okay. We're one big happy family. How does one know what is right and wrong? Well, it's just whatever you feel. Whatever you think. Everybody gets to choose what's right and wrong. Is that true or not? What is the meaning of human history? A history? I hate that class. Oh, maybe there's some ongoing historical perspective that's happening. And what does the future hold? Many times I think in terms of a worldview, not just as the lens through which you look at life, but the picture frame of which I live out my life. And so if that picture frame is nebulous, then I'm at loss. But if the picture frame is defined, then the picture of my life can come into sharper focus. And that picture frame is not a rigid thing that constrains my life. It frames my life. It gives context and purpose to my life. For the questions of life, some of them represented in the questions I just said, are true of every one of you. Whether you're 10 years old this morning, whether you're 17 years old, whether you're 50 years old, or you're 80. And those questions have to do with our origin, where did we come from? Meaning, what's the value in life? Morality, what's right and wrong? And what's our destiny? Where are we going to go? And where are we going to end up if we go with it? All those kinds of questions are a part of our culture. They're seemingly thrown out there in different ways and different kinds of uh, uh, proxies of, of what really is right and wrong and those things. But I want to ask you, what's your worldview? What's your lens you look through? What's the light that shines through your eyes? What is your picture frame? You claim to be a Christian and a Christ follower. You not only need to have a biblical worldview, you must have a worldview. And in your home, I think it's interesting that parents have had to take on some of the teaching of their students and uh, their kids. It's not fun. It's not easy. But friends, as a parent in your home, you are the primary instructor for your children on this subject right here, the worldview. And what are you teaching? And what are you not only teaching with your mouth, what are you teaching by your conduct? Do you believe that sexuality is sacred? Do you believe it's something God created and He has a plan and a purpose for the communality of husband and wife coming together, male and female, in the sacred confines of marriage? Do you sort of believe that? Or is that just sort of a, a cultural idea that sort of went by the way with that skinny Bible belt? 
See, if you really believe that, then your behavior needs to follow in the pattern of the sacredness of sexuality. And even what we would teach our children concerning the sacredness of that, well, you know, premarital sex, I mean, it's just sort of, that's just part of our culture, man. Why would you save that for marriage? That's a good question. And it's a question not only that our young people are having a hard time with, it's a question that adults are having a hard time with. And it may not be premarital sex, it may be sex outside the bounds of marriage. Now some of you are starting to go, Carrie, you're starting to meddle a little bit. Friends, there's consequences to this talk in this series and what I believe God's put on our heart to address in this day and culture. You see, our behaviors are impacted, right? By our values. And our values are impacted by our beliefs. And our beliefs are impacted by our worldview. And you are the primary teacher of that in word and deed as a parent this morning, if you are indeed a parent. And maybe you just have an influence over nieces and nephews or some other people that you teach. We have to think biblically in a culturally divided world. So what is a biblical worldview? Then there's two aspects to it. First, it recognizes God Himself as the unique source of all truth. God Himself is the unique source of all truth. We go back to rock bottom. God created. Jesus Christ created. All that was and is has come into being through Him, it says in John 1. And with that aspect, a biblical worldview at the core recognizes God Himself as the unique source of all truth. Then um, the next aspect is um, listed, I thought listed there, relates all truth back to an understanding of God, His purposes in this life and the life to come. So God exists. He's the base of all truth. He's not a killjoy. He knows truth that will set us free like we talked about last week. It is for freedom you've been set free. Stand firm then and don't become burdened again by a yoke of slavery with a lot of times the culture that's around you, even Christian culture that can bring you to slavery. But we acknowledge that God is the one who embeds, by, embeds all truth and that truth then has to work its way through other aspects, including foremostly the purpose in our life and the life to come after this life. You know, it's uh, not just our day and age that was challenged in the biblical worldview. Jesus had a culture in which he lived, and a lot of the culture that's addressed by Jesus in Scripture is actually <clears throat> the church culture. Did you know we have a church culture? A religious culture? In his day and age, it wasn't the church, the New Testament church, which is followers of Christ. It was the religious system of Judaism. And though Judaism, at its core, is good because it worships the one true God, Yahweh, it got all these rules piled up, like we looked at last week, that you had to follow all these rules. And they didn't like Jesus because Jesus showed up to preach and bring freedom. He had the right worldview, he had the right beliefs, he had the right values, and he had the right behavior. We are called to be Christ-like, and that is how God's working all things for the good, it says in Romans, towards Christ-likeness. But Jesus had these people in his life that were annoying because they were caught up in a religious system of do's and don'ts. And Jesus 
had them come to him often with these pestering questions to trip him up. One time in John 9, I believe it was, or 6 and 9, he, he references, uh, that, he said, hey, here's a blind person. Why do you think this person's blind, Jesus? Was he blind because he sinned uh, at birth? Blind because of this or that? Trying to trip him up. And Jesus just basically ignored them and healed the blind guy. I like this one in Luke 20. If you're familiar with this in verse 20. Watching their opportunity, the leaders, the religious heat, the religious elite, they sent, I like how it says it in the New Living Translation, they sent spies pretending to be honest men. You see, it happens in every generation. And Jesus had to deal with his culture. And they came to him. He sort of understood because he could see through things. They tried to get Jesus, it says, to say something that could be reported to the Roman government so he would be arrested. They tried to entrap him in a non-truth, a lie, or blasphemy. And how were they going to do it? And they were thought, thinking about this for days. Maybe it's like, oh, here's a really good idea. Here's a really good idea. Teacher, they said, we know that you speak and teach what is right and are not influenced by what others think. You teach the way of God truthfully. So, after all that affirmation and blowing him up to make him think proudly, because that's what people do when you usually throw that stuff out, they threw out the hard question. Now tell us. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar? Or what should we do? He saw through their trickery and said, Show me a Roman coin whose picture and title are stamped on it. Uh, Caesar's, they replied. And so Jesus just simply responded and he said, Well then. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. And what happened after that? All kinds of infighting? No. Verse 26 says, So they failed to trap him by what he said in front of the people. Instead, they were amazed at his answer and they became silent. They were positioning to Jesus a behavior are you supposed to pay taxes to Caesar? Because if you pay taxes to Caesar, then you're worshiping him as God, as emperor, right? So we shouldn't have to pay our taxes, right? And he said, give me the coin. What's on the coin? A picture of Caesar, the insignia of Caesar. Give to Caesar's what is Caesar's and gives to God's what is God's. You're going like, is that really an answer, Jesus? He pushed them past the behavior, back to their values, past their values, back to their beliefs, past their beliefs, back to their worldview. Why were they doing what they were doing to him in that moment? Where was their perspective? Where was their heart at? Did they have a true biblical worldview? Because the biblical worldview does what? It recognizes God himself as the supreme source of all truth. And it relates all truth back to an understanding of God and his purposes in their life and the life to come. If you're thinking biblically in a culturally divided world, you need to walk people back past their behaviors, even back past their beliefs, back past even their values to their worldview. 
Why are you acting that way? Well, it doesn't matter how I act. You can do whatever you want to do. Oh, and why, why do you believe that? Did somebody teach you that? Or is that something you discovered on your own? Or something you just picked up at school from somebody? Or at the workplace? Well, I, well, what's your value? What do you really value? Jesus was a master at using questions to open up people to their presuppositions. And if you're going to think biblically and operate biblically in our world, you've got to ask questions. And the question you need to ask is in the statement they already made. Let me see the coin. Huh. Whose picture's on the coin? What's Jesus doing? He's taking them right at their words, moving them past them into questions, and the questions will open them up to their presuppositions concerning what? Concerning their values, concerning their beliefs, and concerning their worldview. If you want to have a good discussion, if you want to stop the whining and stop the fighting and bring Christ transforming into it, then bring truth into it. Jesus said, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. If you know the truth, the truth will set you free, the scriptures say, right? So we are trying to bring truth to people. Friends, when we start thinking past the immediate here and now feel good pleasure moments. Why are you doing what you're doing? Are you on a pathway of sin this very hour? Then we got to ask ourselves, why am I embedded in that sin? Maybe there's some dysfunction. Maybe there's some reaching out, some loneliness or something else in your life. That's all fine and dandy. Let's go past that. Why is that there? Is something deeper, deeper, deeper? You be your own counselor, if you will. Biblically, move past it and challenge one another. Do not fall into the trap of behavior because you live in the fishbowl, in the water of a modern culture that's relativistic and doesn't really seem to have any other value but be kind. And it's our responsibility as believers and as nurturers of others to move past and to move deeper. This is one of the phrases I heard and have carried on in my life. Biblical principles never change, but cultural preferences do. There are some things in culture that are fine. They're preferences. There's some of you that liked the John Rich country music that we led with. Others like, I never listened to country music. That's a cultural preference. Other countries have different kinds of music. There's some things in their culture, likes and dislikes. That's understandable. But friends, not everything's just a preference. There are biblical principles, and you have to stay true to those biblical principles. It's the eye of which will bring light to all of life in your family, in your co-workers even, if you stay in that light. But if you let it go dark, you will lead into darkness in your life as well as they will. Biblical principles never change. I don't know how many youth I have here today, but I want to exhort you. There is truth. There is truth, and that truth comes from biblical principles. And those principles are not there to ruin your life. They're there to bless your life. Biblical principles never change, though cultural preferences often do. Style of worship, that's a cultural preference. So why get all heated on it sometimes? Churches seem to find the smallest little things to pick on rather than come back and find the core of what we need to be adamant about. 
And I'm just positioning to you in this kickoff week that a biblical worldview needs to be at our core of all that we do. Colossians 2.6 as we move to close. Paul said this, So then just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him. Rooted and built up in Him. Strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it. See to it that no one takes you captive. That no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and every authority. Christ is all and is in all who follow Him. And He can be that shining light to bring about the worldview which changes your beliefs and your values and your behavior. Let's go to the core. Your worldview makes a world of difference. Christ calls His followers to rise. To rise above the whining and the fighting of modern culture divides. To engage the minds and the hearts of people with His truth, His compassion, and His purposes. We're to exercise our minds. Train our consciences and develop discernment by the power of the Spirit on the whole counsel of God's Word. And in doing so, we become the presence of Jesus in the culture we are planted with a core biblical worldview establishing our values, informing our beliefs, and guiding our conduct as we offer the redemptive gospel of God's kingdom. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, this morning, may we rise up and allow Your light to shine within and shine through us. Jesus, may we work in the culture in which we've been planted as Your ambassadors, as Your presence, by not whining, by not fighting, by not trying to throw a word out here and there or whatever kinds of means, but may we engage people 
with truth. Truth that will set them free. Whether it's through a a Spirit-led kind of question or through a Spirit-led act of kindness. May we be the ministers of Your Gospel of redemption. And may it begin by us thinking biblically in the culturally divided world in which we swim from day to day. Lord, I pray Your blessing upon us as a people, both here in-house and online. May there be strength and wisdom that comes our way in the interactions of this very week, beginning this afternoon. And may we point people to a biblical worldview that it can enlighten them. And Lord, may we choose to engage, whether it be in acts of kindness, in our careers, in our political positions, may we engage from a biblical worldview and hold dear to the beliefs and the values and the behaviors that come from that core. Earth to God. Come on, God. We need you this very week and this very hour. God's people said, Amen. Pray for as we walk through this series. I want it to be practical. I don't want it to be divisive. I want it to be inspirational. But I also want it to be corrective. I believe God's calling us as a church, the awakening church, to be people awakening people, to be fully alive in Christ and to His mission. Thanks for coming today. We're going to put John Rich back up here as we exit. May you feel, as you feel safe and led, interact as God blesses our community together as a church. Have a great week. We'll see you next week.